You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. For many Americans, summer is synonymous with traveling and going on vacation. Uh, Just listen to some of these statistics from the most recent findings about Americans and their vacationing. Americans will spend this past year just on summer rentals, over $100 billion. The most popular place to go within the U.S. is the Southeast, Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana. And then also in thinking of those statistics, the the general reason why most people travel, 42% of Americans, is to go visit friends and family. Now, I know we've each had opportunity to take some vacations, uh, and I think no matter how great a vacation is, there, there's something good about returning home. Uh, that we like to leave, but we also like to get back home. With that in mind, I want us to look at when we speak as Christians going home, we're talking about heaven. Uh, But maybe we need to better understand what the Bible does tell us about heaven. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21, which takes us all the way to, in a sense, the culmination of redemption history, the plan of salvation, where we're going to take an inside look at this eternal state. What will heaven be like? What is heaven? And this is dovetailing with last week's message where we looked at the doctrine of hell. And we considered four fundamental questions, and we're going to take those same questions and apply them to the doctrine of heaven. In other words, first we'll just simply answer, is there a heaven? What do we base that on? Then we'll consider, why is there a heaven? And third, what will heaven be like? And then conclude by... Who will be in heaven? Uh, So I direct your attention to Revelation chapter 21. And you have this very beautiful description as well, expanded on in chapter 22, of the new heaven and the new earth. And it is in that description of the eternal state uh, that we find the first question answered simply, is there a heaven? Is this a real place? Notice Revelation 21 and how the first verse begins. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the verb saw there is a very common verb in the New Testament, and it means exactly what you would think it means most times, to totally perceive something, to to not imagine it, Uh, to not look at it figuratively, but to actually see this place referred to as heaven. And I think that's so important for us to remind ourselves, just as hell is a real place, not just a figurative state or condition or imaginary thought, but it's a real place. On the flip side, as you look at Scripture, you see, Scripture refers to heaven as a real place. There, there is a reality to this. And you may have noticed in the chorus we just sung, there's a line that says, the faith will be what? Sight. 
everything that we have put our trust in, we will see. Literally, we, we will see the reality of heaven. Now, let me back up a little bit in thinking of the reality of heaven. When you go through the Bible, you'll find phrases like heaven and heavens used over a thousand times. And there are some different ways that the word can be used. So, for example, there's sort of four shades of meaning when we say heaven or heavens. One is simply the atmosphere, referred to where the birds fly and the clouds are. They're in the heavens. So that's one aspect of heaven. A second one, though, is we refer to the upper atmosphere or above that as being the heavens where the stars have been placed by God, where the galaxies are. Then we also find in the New Testament references to heaven as a, a, a state. In other words, we speak of the kingdom of heaven and that reign of Christ in our hearts now and expanded into uh, a future time where we will visibly see a literal kingdom that will fill all heaven and earth. And then finally we get to what sometimes is the heavens or the highest heavens, the dwelling place of God, and the angels. So it's in that picture that we see this word heaven used throughout the scriptures. But as we come to Revelation 21, we're ushered into now the, the very presence and throne room of God. And this is something we can try to imagine what it's like. Scripture gives you some details about it. Uh, but we won't fully grasp this until we find ourselves standing in his presence. So the reality of heaven is very clearly stated. Let me read for you these words from, from John, John's gospel, same writer of Revelation. But notice what he says here. He records the words of Jesus when he's in the upper room with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. John, who would have been sitting there listening, wrote this. He says, Jesus said this, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is how literally Jesus speaks of this eternal reality of heaven. And this is very important for us because we live in a day and an age where people often want to take the thought of heaven and hell and turn it into something just figuratively or dismiss it altogether and just hold that when this life ends, that's it, game over. That's not what the scriptures present as we look at the reality of heaven. But going back to Revelation 21, Again, in that very opening verse, this is a new heaven and a new earth. And so we see in John's vision that he receives here that there is both continuity and discontinuity between this present heaven and this present earth. So sort of think for a moment, what would be the continuity there is between this present heaven and earth and what this eternal state will be. Well, one of the continuities is it's still called 
earth and heaven. Even though it is new, which emphasizes not a newness in quantity, but in quality. But yet it is still the new earth and the new heaven. Just like I think we can conclude that we know we will have new bodies. But yet scripture does indicate we will still have an identity. We will know and distinguish from others. So it won't be we will see one person and think everybody's Abraham. We'll, we'll know who Abraham is. We'll know who the saints are. So even on that sense, you can see a continuity. But there's also a very clear in this presentation, a discontinuity. That is, notice this present earth is temporary. And it is corrupt. It bears the marks of sin. All of us who are going to leave the house tomorrow for work realize work will be a chore. And that's not because work was given to man as a punishment. It was given as a part of being created in the image of God, a way to worship him. But because of sin, it becomes difficult. It becomes an obstacle, a chore. So there is a discontinuity as well when you look at this. The future new heaven, new earth will be incorruptible. It will be permanent. So it's important as we think of the reality of heaven to first wrap our minds around it is a real place with both similarities and extremely different differences between what we see now and what we are assured will come. Now you notice in verse 1, which I read, the very end of the verse says, and there was no longer any sea. Uh, some of you probably know that if you were to go through the scriptures, the word sea is often used as a picture of, of evil, chaos, turmoil. Uh, the wicked man is sometimes described as a sea. He's constantly turning, searching, but never finding truth uh, because he's not turning and is unable to turn to God. But another interesting thought about that is, yes, sin will be done away with, eliminated. But as consider, too, a, a little interesting point. Where's John when he receives this vision? He's on the island of Patmos, this, this island where he's been exiled in the Aegean Sea, which has waves hitting it to, in a sense, prevent someone from leaving the island. I was watching a show the other day, just for a few minutes. It's all about Alcatraz. And we're saying one of the most terrifying things for prisoners in Alcatraz was you could see civilization and California right across the water. But the water was a barrier. It was a terrible thing to see freedom, but to know you could not attain it. Interesting is John here, kind of living in a place at this time in exile, well, he can hear probably the waves crashing against the rocks. So, you know, there's going to come a day when there's no sin. No sin. Nothing that separates us from being with others in Christ Jesus and being with our Lord and our Savior. So we can be confident, just as confident, if there is a hell, then there is a literal heaven. And notice I say it that way because your answer to one will impact your answer to the other. 
anywhere often find people who dismiss hell are often going to dismiss the true reality of heaven and what scripture teaches. Let's move to the second question. That is simply why, why is there a heaven? Um, and you could say, well, there's a hell, so there has to be the opposite. That's a very weak answer and support. But notice in verse 2 of Revelation 21, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Notice that phrase, prepared. Uh, it's in a perfect tense, which means something that was done from a point in the past that has existing results. In other words, the creation of heaven, just like the creation of hell, was not an afterthought by God, but was done before the very foundations of the world. So why was a place like this prepared, made ready, not just for maybe you and me in Christ as we look forward to, but well, what was the purpose of this? Well, I'd like to back up from that and simply say heaven witnesses and proclaims the glory of God. Here we have showcased for us the glory and awesomeness of God. When we begin to try to fathom some of the depths of the description that we have of heaven. Notice it simply says here it's, it's a holy city. Now, our understanding of a city today is very different, maybe, especially living in a somewhat more rural area. Uh, we may feel uncomfortable in the city. We associate increased crime rate. So this, that's not why heaven is described as a city. You, know, you better park your car or you'll lose, your, you know, you'll lose it. But their thought here is it's a place of activity, security, safety. That's what a city meant in ancient days. A wild city is where you want it to be. You were safe, and you were protected from anything that might try to enter that city. But it's not just a city, it's a holy city. It's the new Jerusalem. And you want to think for a moment here, what is it in the, the language here that, again, is describing something using human words so that we can understand it to the best of our abilities, but also does not do and cannot do accurate justice to what heaven is going to be like. Heaven will display the glory of God. Look at me at 1 Kings chapter 8. And I think we have a glimpse of this when the temple is built and dedicated under King Solomon. Uh, all of the work, the effort, uh, the gold materials that his father David had set aside and collected up uh, all is put into this magnificent structure that is built. But you get to the prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 27 through 30. And, and just listen to what Solomon recognizes about the glory of God. As Solomon prays, he says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, 
this place of which he said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. When you hear, forgive. There's a lot of what Solomon is picturing there, ultimately what we will see in the new heaven and the new earth. God's presence will be there. His, his people will speak to him in such a way that, that their, their prayers, everything is centered around the glory of God. Maybe very different from sometimes when we think of wiser heaven, we almost look at it as an extended vacation, a place where, well, you know, we put up with things in this world, and then at least we die, and we're in a happy place, and all our sicknesses, our aches and pains are gone. If we have that limited perspective on heaven, then we're missing the glory of God that is key to heaven. In other words, we speak in Scripture of the beatific vision, this thought that when you are in heaven, you will see God for who he really is. John, who's receiving this message in Revelation, is the same one who writes in 1 John 3, we shall see him as he is. This is John who saw Jesus' ministry on earth. He saw Jesus following his resurrection. Saying, you know what? There will be a day when heaven is all about being in the presence of Christ. It's not all about just seeing other loved ones who have gone ahead of you in Christ Jesus. Yes, that is a reality in heaven, but if, if that's all you think heaven is, then your focus is misplaced. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan writer, would say, heaven is not heaven without Jesus Christ. Heaven is not heaven without Jesus Christ. If he is not at the center of you realizing you're in his presence, then whatever you're clinging to is not the biblical look of what heaven is. Paul certainly refers to this in Romans 8 when he talks about creation and every Christian right now is groaning. So why don't you do your best imitation of a groan? Count of three, all of you just groan. One, two, three. Yeah, now, now Paul's not saying that's how we sound. He's saying we groan in anticipation of birth. In other words, we're looking ahead to this heaven, this new heaven, this new earth. And we're excited about it. It is our hope. And it, we're certain. But right now, we, we kind of groan, not a complaining groan. But as I said, a groan of birth pains, looking forward to what will be. So that gives us some indication why is there where we often go with, though, is probably the third question, what will heaven be like? And we know there are lots of metaphors, descriptive terms for heaven. Uh, paradise, it's like a banquet, uh, a wedding feast. It's a city with streets of gold. As we read those descriptions, we must remind ourselves we're describing a spiritual place and reality, that there are no human words to actually describe it. 
But God in his grace and mercy gives us enough revelation so we can be excited about what awaits us when we go home. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 21. And from that, we'll look specifically in verses 3, 4, and 5, uh, some distinct characteristics of this new heaven, this new earth, our eternal state. Notice in verse 3, emphasizes here, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live Throughout Scripture, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, the importance of the tabernacle, then the temple, it was a way to physically show God's presence among his people. But as Solomon recognized in his prayer, that this is a, a, a mystery and a terrifying thing. How can God live among his people when he is holy and we are not? And yet Christ has bridged that and made that possible, preparing for what is revealed here, when, when God's presence will dwell in a way it has never done before. Where he will be tabernacled among us, and we will be in his presence and see him as we ourselves are known. In other words, uninterrupted fellowship, communion, with God. No, no sin to hinder that. No, no distractions in our thoughts and our mind. But Christ will say, aren't you paying attention? We, we'll be riveted on being in his presence. God will dwell. The culmination of everything the scriptures talk about from the beginning of Adam and Eve when God walked in the garden with them and send them, cause them to run from God. To now that being brought back to God's created purpose and design. Then you get to verse 4. And there, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And we mustn't skim over words like all, every, which mean completely. It's not just going to be a better place than this present heaven and earth. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything that we could associate with, with this life that we live, pain, suffering, discomfort, completely removed. Why? Because we do know from a biblical perspective, God uses those things in this present world to purify us, to draw us closer to himself. Yet the reason they're absent from heaven is because those all are the result of sin. If sin is done away with, then so are all of these consequences of sin that we experience on a daily basis. So what a picture here, and again, the sad part is for many people, they want to focus on heaven as being no pain, no tears, no sorrow. But you don't get that without the glory of God. Without acknowledging who God is. 
Remember where John is as he writes this. He's, he's in exile. He, he's separate from Christian fellowship. He's, he's not able to worship with his brothers and sisters in Christ how he would desire to. And yet you could say he's involved in his own worship experience here. Being brought to see what is yet unseen, but is real. Notice verse 5. Again, you're not only in the presence of the Father, the Lamb, and the Holy Spirit, but verse 5 says, He who was seated on the throne, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. We spoke about heaven is not heaven without Jesus Christ at the center of it. Well, notice how Christocentric this is, the one on the throne. In other words, heaven is going to be a place of uninterrupted worship and service unto God, unto the three in one. And what will that exactly look like? I don't know. Scripture doesn't fill that in for us. But, but it's not a vacation, but yet we will be engaged in enjoying God's presence forever, worshiping the one who is on the throne. Consistency in our understanding of heaven and hell would also lead us to conclude that just as there are degrees of punishment in hell, there are degrees, we might say, of glory and reward in heaven. Look at me just for one example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you could, on your own, look at 1 Corinthians 3. But 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 41 and 42. Paul's talking about what will our bodies be like? What will be like in this resurrected state, in this new heaven and this new earth? We get to verse 41, and in that description, Paul mentions this. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. It seems to be indicating here, yes, well, being God's presence, there's, there's a splendor. We'll have resurrected bodies. But yet there will be a difference of degree of glory and rewards because of our faithfulness, devotion to Christ in this present world. That should be and incite us, not leave us complacent and be like, well, I'm going to heaven, that's, that's all there is, but, but an eagerness about our walk with Christ now. Now, I said that often we're describing something that there's nothing on this side of heaven to compare it to, which is probably why you notice in Revelation 21, at the end of verse 5, after giving this brief description, of what heaven will be like. It says, these words are trustworthy and true. So Jesus Christ, the one on the throne, says these words, they're true. This is what it is. Now, very interesting, in the next chapter, chapter 22, and you'll notice verse 6, there's a similar discussion about this is what heaven will be like. This time the angel says to John, these words, 
not trustworthy and true. In other words, if you're saying, I, I can't imagine this, John's saying, you're right, you can't. So the best thing to do is say, you know what? This is trustworthy and true. This is reality, even though I cannot see it now. We come to our last question, which again may seem to us like, well, I know the answer to this, and I hope you do, but I hope you'd be able to explain it more if someone said, well, who will be in heaven? Because you know, for many people, they assume they'll be in heaven. I think the topic of heaven and hell always raises the question, there's nothing worse than no assurance than having false assurance. Then assuming somehow heaven is where everybody goes, universalism, or thinking somehow more an annihilistic kind of view of life that just ends when it ends here on earth, and that's it, or you're just destroyed, and that's it. But notice in this passage, you get to verses 6 through 8. And once again, we are reminded, just as John heard Jesus say in the upper room, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That entrance into heaven is by grace. Because notice verses 6 and 7. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Those who will be in heaven are only those who have been saved by grace, justified, adopted into the family of God. And the way that is evident is our perseverance in the faith, how we have overcome in Christ Jesus. Just as we saw in Matthew chapter 25 last week, the thought of well, those who were on the right hand, who were accepted in God's kingdom, were those who gave you know, this to the needy. It was not by works, but it was saying that was evidence of their genuine faith. And so in a pluralistic world, we see this does not fit what our pluralistic world teaches. You don't get to heaven by your works. You don't get there by being a nice person. You're not granted into God's presence. It's by grace. It is given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And I think we want to emphasize that because not only do most Americans believe they're going to heaven, but a latest religious survey found that 25% of Americans claim that they are evangelicals, or by that, that they are born again. And yet, out of that 25%, only 15% could articulate what are some basic Christian beliefs. That, that should trouble us. We've got so many people who are confused about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And, and will I be in heaven? And who will be in heaven? Verses 8 and 9 are probably hard sometimes for us to read. Because those verses delineate, there will be those denied entrance into heaven. 
And this is perfect justice and righteousness. Notice as you listen to that list, cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars. Now I'm going to guess that there's probably a few in there that you might say, I've never done that. Or you'd be tempted to think, well, of course, I've never murdered anyone. But, but let me just remind you, what did Jesus say about if you hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart? If you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart? So this is not saying, as some people think, well, I'm not a saint, you know, I'm not perfect. Well, this is saying, that's not what God's saying. But you're a sinner who has been forgiven by grace. So you don't live in these patterns. This is not what defines you, what characterizes you. But for those who this is their life, this defines their actions, their attitudes. It displays that they clearly have not acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as much as we might like to comfort someone, we cannot give them false assurance. One day I conducted a funeral for someone, very nice, very nice woman, lived on the street for many years, but I could not give assurance of where she is because she was a nice woman. But I had no assurance that she knew Christ as the Lord and Savior. And I could speak to the family and say, this is what, you know, is held out for you if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But it's important for us to realize that heaven is not for perfect people. It's for forgiven sinners saved by grace. And Paul would echo this in his letter to Corinth, which had its own issues. And he would say to them, you know, these are the people that aren't going to be in heaven. And you were once like that, but you have been washed by God. You have been made clean in Jesus Christ. So as we look at this biblical description of heaven presented in this vision given to John, this should encourage you, this side of heaven, to know this is what awaits us. It should also increase your love for God. Because how can we speak of worshiping and liking and enjoying worship with Him now? Or actually saying the opposite, that we have a hard time worshiping Him now and thinking we're, we're going to enjoy that for eternity. But it should also compel and motivate you to tell others of this reality, to tell them about Jesus Christ. I'm sure there's a number of you who have read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In his book, The Last Battle, uh, he has the children who he's been following through this journey as they want to get into Narnia. Uh, he has them ready to leave the Shadowlands. And he says this as they're ready to leave the Shadowlands. He writes this. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia have only been the cover and title page. Now at last they are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one 
What a, a beautiful picture of what heaven is. But we can be assured of in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.